Welcome to episode 3 of Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. This year marks the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which made it unconstitutional to deny the vote on the basis of sex. But as our guest today will make clear, the campaign for women's suffrage consisted of much more than the 19th Amendment. It formed part of a wider struggle involving a number of political and social reforms, including racial justice, women's legal equality, and other still unrealized goals. Today's conversation is the first of several episodes, each looking at a different reform in voting, with an emphasis on Maine's role in these changes. I'm particularly glad our guest today, Allison Lang, agreed to do this interview. She is such a rising star among scholars of suffrage that she was recently a part of a project involving several celebrity hosts. Unused to such star power, I even mispronounced one of those celebrities' names. My apologies to Rosario Dawson and all of her fans who may be listening. Here at Mainly History, we believe no citizen should be denied the franchise, and no listener should be kept waiting by an overlong introduction. Let's do this. My guest today is Dr. Allison Lang, Associate Professor of History at the Wentworth Institute of Technology. She has a new book, Picturing Political Power, Images in the Women's Suffrage Movement, which just came out this May. She's also curated several suffrage exhibitions at Harvard's Schlesinger Library, and one I saw last year that was fantastic, Can She Do It in the Massachusetts Historical Society? Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here. I'm always excited to talk about suffrage. Glad to have you. You've actually become kind of a big deal. You've become a prominent public intellectual as various organizations reflect on the passage of the 19th Amendment. And I'm most excited personally by your the recently released podcast, And Nothing Less, produced by the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission and the National Park Service, and which was hosted by Rosario Dawson, and Retta, best known as Donna from Parks and Recreation. So first question, did you get to talk to them? Sadly, no. I wish I could have. I love Parks and Rec. I also love Jane the Virgin, which Rosario Dawson was on. So it was like two of my favorite shows, two fantastic actresses. But alas, there were some very wonderful professionals that did the original interviews. And actually, the hosts were a secret. They didn't tell us who the host would be. And so um, I actually was in charge of fact-checking the podcast. And that's when I found out who the hosts were. And I, I swear it was like the biggest women's history secret I've ever had to keep. <laughs> so they weren't asking you direct questions? No, it was oh. um, a team that was in charge of the story. And so they really put together the podcast. And we had these wonderful hosts, you know, essentially perform it, right? So... That's, oh. uh, was it? Yeah. <laughs> Here I was thinking you were going to be, you know, I was thinking, wow, she's just dealing with all these, these big wigs now. And so coming on Mainly History, it'll be like an opportunity for you to be alone with your thoughts. You're a scholar of the imagery and the campaigns for women's suffrage. You've been involved with these 19th Amendment exhibits. We're at the centennial. Could you start off by 
explaining to us, this is not always well understood, what did the 19th Amendment actually accomplish? This is such an important question. The 19th Amendment did not grant women the right to vote, it did not guarantee women the right to vote. What it did is it prohibited voter discrimination based on sex. And that's important because it does the same thing as the, the 15th Amendment does, which perhaps people might also be familiar with too, which prohibits voter discrimination based on race. But as we all know, in the 1890s um, in the South, there are all these new voter discrimination laws, poll taxes, literacy tests, all kinds of pieces of legislation that, that prevent particularly people of color, particularly poor people from voting and those kinds of discriminatory laws continue to get passed. And so they prevent Japanese women from voting, Native American women from voting. Um, and we should is, add as much as I love being a smug New Englander and hating on the South, states like Massachusetts passed pauper laws and tried to institute other poll taxes and sort of intelligence tests to limit their voting pool as well. Yes, and I think it's really important to recognize that the 19th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, the fact that they don't guarantee anyone the right to vote means that even in the 21st century, we're still having conversations about who can vote, whether you need a voter ID or whether you're criminal past perhaps could affect your voting status. Um, it's because nothing in the constitution and nothing in these amendments guarantee the right to vote that we are still having those conversations. That is a fascinating public misconception. And I'm sure you encounter it with your students too, that my students are always shocked to learn that in the constitution, we don't have a right to vote for president, for example. And that all those amendments say is that you can't be kept from voting for certain specific reasons but not that you have a constitutional right to vote. Exactly. States get to decide who is voting, um, you know, besides the amendments that are in place. Yep. And I right. think that the other perhaps thing that my students don't always know is what the word suffrage means. You know, we often uh, think about it having to do with like suffering, um, but it simply means the right to vote. And in the 19th century, uh, it was a word used to apply to black men, to apply to white men. It was, it was a very popular word 100 years ago that has really fallen out of favor. That's a good point. Now, another misconception I'd like to address before we get into the suffrage campaign, and that is usually when I ask my college students what kind of rights groups like women and African-Americans had to fight to win, voting is the be all and end all for most people when they talk about rights. And yet for American women, suffrage was only one of many rights they were fighting for. And it was, it was in this constellation of other second-class citizen statuses that they faced and other, other legal and economic rights that they were fighting to win. And so yes. around the time of the suffrage campaign, what were the major other rights the activists you study were fighting for? Yes, that is exactly the case for these women's rights activists. I mean, just to kind of put it in context, at the founding of the United States, there was a legal idea of coverture, which basically said that uh, married women were essentially the, the legal, had the same legal identity as their husbands. That's why women changed their names. They couldn't sign contracts. They weren't in control of their own property. So even if they like inherited property, it would become their husbands. Um, so 
it's not just about the vote, even in the 1840s and even in 1848, if we're looking at the Seneca Falls Convention, it was always about securing better educations, getting better jobs, getting control over your own money. And those movements are very much intertwined and women thought and, you know, men who supported women's votes thought right. That if, if women got the right to vote, perhaps they could enact anti-alcohol temperance laws or laws that would make schools better for their children or any range of reforms that they hoped that um, women could, female voters could help pass. That is a great point that we'll get back to, this question of women's suffrage as a sort of capstone right where hooray we've won versus women's suffrage as a foundation with which to acquire and secure other rights. And a, a final, final obstacle they faced that I was floored to learn just this week was that single women could not go to the bank and open a bank account and secure loans without a male signer. They weren't guaranteed that right until the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the fact that women weren't necessarily allowed to have their own credit card until the 1970s, right. maybe it's not as surprising. Right. Okay. That one too. Ha, ah, each one, right? And so, uh, okay. So we'll backtrack. So you are first and foremost, the scholar of the suffragists and their opponents and the, the visual arguments they made. What kinds of venues did suffragists tend to publish their images in? Were these magazines, newspapers, books, highbrow, lowbrow, something in between? By the time the suffragists started their visual campaign, it was really everywhere, right? Okay. Anywhere they could, anyone that would listen to them, they would be happy to, to kind of like distribute their images with. But, you know, in the most of the 19th century, popular publications, magazines, newspapers, books, mostly those were authored, published, edited, printed by opponents of women's rights. So they, for most of the 19th century, were actually writing their own newspapers and publishing their okay. own books in the hopes to reach, um, reach some audiences. And that really changed beginning in the early 20th century. And by the 1910s, you see a lot of mainstream publications endorsing suffrage and promoting various suffrage imagery, propaganda, cartoons, portraits of the leaders. But, you know, one example of that, that never changed is Life magazine, like continued through the end to be anti-suffrage. But by the end, really? uh, it was one of the few, yeah. Huh. So sticking with the, the proponents of suffrage in the, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, what would you say uh, some of the most popular genres uh, of, of artistic arguments were? Like, were they more likely to be satirical? Did they wrap themselves in the flag? Did they invoke religion? Were that, was there a sort of embrace of, of radicalism? Yeah, I mean, so I would say that there are three different genres. One being this um, idea of portraits. So emphasizing who their leaders were. They wanted people to think of women as political leaders. The second I would think of as propaganda in a way that they're like more like cartoons or illustrations. Um, and those often emphasize that women, particularly white, more upper class women, would be, were good mothers. And because they were good mothers, they should have the right to vote. 
The third type of imagery that I think is really important to, to think about are photographs. So photographs of these really innovative, exciting protests, you know, women marching in the streets, which, you know, may sound like a normal thing for women to do today, but in the early 1900s was this pretty exciting, pretty dramatic. Um, and of course, of the nation's first ever pickets of the White House in 1917, um, you know, the suffragists really made that that location into a site of protest that it still is, uh, you know, over a century later. And so those are the three kinds of images that we okay. really see around the turn of the century. So two follow-up questions on that. The first is, I think the recent movie on suffragists in England starring Carrie Mulligan, I thought that was that was the first movie about this that I'm aware of that showed the sort of militant activist side of the of the suffrage movement uh, is there any is there any popular depiction somewhere that you know of for the american side of that story yes iron jawed angels which was an Ooh. hbo film it's a little older now um, but not too old it has hillary swank playing american suffragist alice paul and it shows this kind of story about women deciding to, to borrow these tactics from Br the British suffragists that the other film, The Suffragette, uh, depicts um, and bring them to the United States and how Alice Paul and Lucy Burns and many others work to organize these parades and the pickets, um, how they are arrested and jailed and force-fed all in order to kind of win over supporters and win attention to their cause. And I, I show it to my students and there's, you know, they really enjoy it. It's certainly, you know, a Hollywood film. There's like a sure. love story in it that isn't, is definitely not accurate. It suggests that Alice Paul is more supportive of black women suffragists than it really should have. But um, I think as far as like a dramatic interpretation, it's really engaging. I'll have to check it out. So my other question is that 19th century feminists often spoke of women's inherent qualities as making them suitable for behaving as virtuous advocates and, and virtuous voters. And so they invoked women's special separate characteristics apart from men as making them entitled to or fit for voting and, and citizenship. By the early 20th century, do you find more feminists moving away of this sort of separate spheres, women as voters because of their special inherently woman qualities arguments? Or does this continue in the, in the last two decades of the, the, the push in the 20th century? I think it depends on who we're looking at here, right? So in the 19th century, people like Susan B. Anthony, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, a lot of these activists are actually advocating for women uh, as equals. They're, they're making this case that women are equals. Um, and, it's, and for me, in my research, I really found that people double down on this gender norm that you're mentioning really in the 1890s, actually, with the Progressive Era movement. And people are, in the suffrage movement by then, kind of really as a whole embraces the kind of, kind of gendered language that you're talking about, about how women are, 
you know, suffragists might have mentioned it before, but by the 1890s, they are making this like their banner argument about why women should have the right to vote, um, particularly the National American Women's Suffrage Association. But even the National Association of Colored Women is kind of thinking about the ways that women have these, you know, supposedly innate, you know, motherly right. virtuous qualities. And that's why they need the right to vote. Of course, Alice Paul and her militant suffragists do not agree. They really kind of looked back to people like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Harper, who, who really did make the case that women were equal. That's why they deserve the right to vote. So it's, it's really complicated. So often the case. <laughs> you mentioned the progressive era from 1890 to 1920. This is a, a time of a number of reform efforts, often tied to issues of, of governments. And so the progressive era reformers were very concerned, in, according to the, their own campaigns anyway, with cleaning up corruption, inefficient government, uh, making, the, making the government work better. I'm wondering, how does the campaign for giving women the vote fit within this wider progressive agenda? Is this, are women as voters advocated as an important part of cleaning up government? Yes. And so two people that I would give as examples of this would be Jane Addams and Mary Church Terrell. So Jane Addams, as many of us probably know, was this really important progressive era leader. She's kind of the, the instigator of the, the settlement house movement in the United States, founded Hull House in Chicago. And she, she becomes a really important suffrage leader. And she really is an advocate of this idea that women need to participate in government in order to, to make it, to clean it up, to clean up their cities. She's literally a garbage inspector uh, <laughs> at, the, at a time when she's, when cities were, were just starting to take on that responsibility. Um, and so she definitely was an advocate of kind of women as these more virtuous figures, runners of households in order to clean up politics. Like one of the things I want to point out with Jane Addams is that despite the fact that she's making this case uh, about women as mothers, women as caregivers, she herself never marries and never has children. And she actually has a, a female partner. And so even though she's making this argument that's really appealing to Americans at the time, in reality, she's not living that life at all. Uh. She knows this is rhetoric that appeals to the masses. So I think that's a really um, important kind of point to make. A related other, argument or a related yeah. question I have is in terms of cleaning up in the progressive era, a number of Americans were disgusted with what they viewed as the both corrupt political parties and these corrupt, particularly urban machines uh, of, of patronage. And there was certainly some anti-immigrant bias thrown in there. But were women voters held up as potentially more resistant to the lure of the corruption of party politics? Yes. Yes. People like Jane Addams and many other leading suffragists argued that women would make politics less corrupt. And so that is certainly a component here. And I think that thinking about someone like Mary Church Terrell and I.D.B. Wells, who are, you know, thinking about the right to vote, but also thinking about advocating against 
for anti-lynching legislation. Um, you know, as part of this progressive era period, they want the, they're wanting to make the government accountable for all of the, the violence against Black people in the United States. I think that that's a really good example of the ways that progressive reformers really felt like women could really make these changes um, and make the government kind of actually take care of its citizens. That's a good point. And we should add that historically, the women's rights movement in the United States was intimately tied up with the anti-slavery struggle and and then later campaigns for, for anti-racism, although not all the time. And I'm, we shouldn't suggest that the white women's rights activists were always, were always looking out for the interests of, of non-white women. But certainly when we look at the history of, of the women's rights movement in this country, we have to pay serious attention to how they were deeply entwined with the anti-slavery and, and, and later civil rights movements for, uh, for Americans of color. Definitely, yes. And it's often the fact that, you know, we don't think about some of the suffragists of color who were really important leaders because um, a lot of the white suffragists didn't allow them to have leadership positions in their organizations or even sometimes be members of their organizations. So I think you're, you're really correct to point that out. Well, and likewise, right, the, the Seneca Falls in 1848 was certainly not the beginning of the American women's rights movement, but the, the beginning of the, the truly flourishing organized women's rights movement in this country was founded by, in particular, a number of women who were anti-slavery activists who were not allowed to speak or participate in these male-dominated organizations. And then they finally came around and, and a lot of them said, well, I guess we should found our organization for ourselves as well. Definitely, so. yes. There's, it's, it's fascinating to me how all of these reform movements throughout the 19th century are interconnected in many meaningful ways. And I think that, you know, we see that really clearly in our own 21st century world. We see how various social justice movements are kind of overlapping. I'm glad you brought that up because that brings me to my next question. It is the third prong of what I always talk about with my classes as the, the third prong of the, the trinity of 19th century activism, anti-slavery, women's rights, but then prohibition. Yes. And so if you could please talk about a bit, if you would, because many, many audience members might be very surprised that prohibition was a major cause for both anti-slavery and women's rights activists. And after the Civil War, prohibition and women's rights often went hand in hand. And indeed, the 18th and 19th Amendments were passed within 12 months of each other. Yes, that is uh, really important to note. And the Women's Christian Temperance Union was actually the largest suffrage organization for much of the late 19th century, even though it's often not considered a, a, a suffrage organization. That's the organization that the National American Women's Suffrage Association actually modeled itself after. They're the ones who started having press committees first, um, publishing their own publishing company. So it's the Women's Christian Temperance Union really believed that if women won the right to vote, they would be able to pass temperance prohibition uh, legislation. Of course, the irony is the 19th Amendment passed after the 18th. That's right. Um, that though, to be fair, a lot of women in various states were able to vote before the 19th Amendment and so very well could have influenced and probably did influence the passage of the 18th Amendment. 
I believe um, that was why some states even, because you're absolutely right, the, as we'll get to, many women secure the right to vote on a state-by-state -state basis. And I, at least a few of the states, I believe it was the, the dries or the, the prohibition forces who wanted to enfranchise women in the belief that they would vote dry and, and ban alcohol in the state. Definitely, yeah. Women now, can I ask, this is something that, again, modern audiences might not expect or understand, but why was prohibition so often framed as a women's issue? It was really framed as a women's issue because, as we mentioned, women in many households don't have control over the running of the household. They are not necessarily in charge of money. They are not making decisions. And so when women like Frances Willard, who's the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, they argue that, if, that women need to have greater control over these things. And that men, uh, we need to prohibit alcohol because men are abusing women. There's domestic violence and this is, you know, um, increased by having alcohol, but also because men aren't necessarily making the best financial decisions for their family. And so if alcohol is, um, is prohibited, then that means that perhaps these families will be able to um, have better lives, that women will have better lives, that that children will have better lives. And so that's how temperance really gets framed as a women's issue. Interesting. If you could build on that, since you've looked at so much of the imagery, one of the demonized figures for the prohibition movement was the saloon keeper. Was the saloon keeper frequently invoked in suffrage literature as well as prohibition literature as this you know, early 20th century version of basically a drug dealer? Yes. So the saloon keeper was certainly thought of as a corrupt figure in opposition to suffrage. And one of the things we see particularly as anti-suffragists start organizing in the 1890s, actually 1895, New England is the um, the, the birthplace of the first anti-suffrage organization, Massachusetts specifically in 1895, founded by women, run by women. Um, these organizations were often getting support by pro-alcohol uh, leaders um, in order to promote their work because those pro-alcohol, anti-temperance leaders really feared that if women did get the right, right to vote, temperance would indeed pass. So you mentioned the rise of these organized anti-suffrage campaigns for women, and particularly in, in Massachusetts. What were the major arguments they deployed in their campaign? Anti-suffragists deployed a range of arguments, and a lot of them had to do with this idea that women were privileged not to participate in politics, and that it was men's responsibility to to take care and vote with their, their wives, their mothers, their daughters, their aunts' um, interests in mind, right? So sometimes they argued that, um, that if women were to vote, they would simply double their husbands' votes. And so why would we spend extra government funding on, uh, on having women vote? They argued that women were not soldiers, didn't participate in war, um, and because of that, they also should not have the right to vote. So it's a real range of, of arguments. And that, that last argument about uh, military service, 
that gets kind of people, suffragists really trying challenge that, of course, with World War I, when women enlist to become nurses and go overseas and support the war effort in that way in order to kind of prove themselves as citizens. So women suffer, anti-suffragists are using every trick in the book. And if you're interested in finding out more about those arguments, Alice Stone Blackwell, who was a suffragist in Boston, the daughter of famous suffragist Lucy Stone and Henry Brown Blackwell wrote a pamphlet called Objections Answered, which has some fascinating anti-suffrage arguments that you can check out, as well as her suggestions of how you're supposed to counter those arguments. When I see these campaigns by the anti-suffrage crowd, I'm struck by how primal some of them are and how a lot of it really boils down to this just sexualized gendered anxiety where if, if women vote, they'll become men. And yes. I've, I've seen cartoons where there's just a pair of pants and it says, if women vote, who wears these? And there's, there's another cartoon, I don't know if you've seen it, where there's a little girl who sneaks into a little boy's room and is running away with his trousers while he's sleeping. And it says, now that if, if the women can vote, what can't they do? And, and so it's just really primal and using this anxiety over the supposed destruction of, of gender distinctions in America as a way to, to, to raise up this kind of fear. Yes, and it is, as you say, anxiety and fear. And I think that, you know, the, as far as those cartoons go, um, if your listeners are interested in kind of seeing a place uh, where all those cartoons are, or a bunch of those cartoons are gathered, the Massachusetts Historical Society's website for the exhibition I curated, Massachusetts Debates and Women's Right to Vote, um, is online. And the Mass Historical Society actually has a really spectacular collection of anti-suffrage material because the Massachusetts Anti-Suffrage Association was located just down the street. And ah. I think we can kind of guess uh, perhaps how the Mass Historical Society leadership felt about anti-suffrage, perhaps uh, ah. get their own, <laughs> own preferences at that time for having kind of had that close, perhaps, connection to that organization, but it's a spectacular collection of their materials. I'm trying to remember, is this the collection where there is, it has a, an image where it says, it's from the 19th century, and it says, you know, a group of women politicians, and it's women leaning against a bar and smoking cigars and knocking back whiskey and making deals. And of course, I look at this image and I think that looks so cool. Like what's wrong with that? But this is conjured up as clearly the world turned upside down. Exactly. And honestly, the, the image that you just described uh, like conjures up so many images for me. It's not even just one. Those pictures were so popular. I mean, really from the founding of the nation, um, through the passage of the 19th Amendment, those kinds of pictures were just, you know, part of the air that people were breathing. People encountered them absolutely everywhere. <laughs> Turning to the positive side, what's your favorite pro-suffrage image that you've encountered in your work? I think it's not a particular image, but one of the types of images that suffragists produce that I think is really valuable were the portraits that they distributed. And, you know, they did it because they wanted 
people at the time to know who their leaders were and to see them as political leaders. And I think the wonderful thing about that for us today is that we actually know then who a lot, what a lot of these women looked like. And I think that's a really valuable thing for us. Um, there are so many women who I'm sure made contributions to their own communities that we just simply don't know what they look like. We don't have any face to put with the name. And having those portraits today is, I think, incredibly powerful. I mean, how many portraits do we have of Abraham Lincoln? Um, but, right. you know, I think it's really important that these, these early women's rights activists made their faces available for us today. Very cool. Speaking a bit about geography, and of course we'll turn to Maine in a moment, we should add that the, the geography of women's suffrage doesn't map on to maybe the kinds of political geography that 21st century Americans might expect, where women win the right to vote early on in Western states, and it's much more of a West-East situation than a, than a North-South one. And we should we should point out that New England, very few New England women had the right to vote before the 20th, or before the, sorry, before the 19th Amendment compared to their compatriots, say, west of the Mississippi River. Why is that, do you think? There are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, Wyoming Territory, women won the right to vote there in 1869. So they celebrated in 2019 their 150th year of women voting there. And I think that there are a bunch of different reasons for this. You know, one is that they hoped that women would move west. Uh, they needed more citizens in order to become a state. They hoped women would move west um, in order to uh, get, gain that population. Um, I think that women were um, not as gender differentiated roles there, which was, a, a, I think, a, a way of seeing women as more equals in society as well. Um, I think that there are a real range of reasons why this happened. Um, populists, uh, the, popu the rise of populism um, in the 1890s, um, they really believed that if they could pass women's voting rights and at the state level, that their platform would pass. And so, for example, Colorado, that's why suffrage passed a little earlier there um, because of the populist platform. And so it, it really depends on the location why suffrage passed, but um, So yes. along those lines, on the, on the negative side of the ledger, right, women's suffrage encounters a series of reverses in New England states right up until the 19th Amendment. And New England, even though women did not win the right to vote in most New England locations until close to 1920 at least, uh, it, it nevertheless was the, the cockpit of the abolition movement certain anti-racist, other progressive movements, and really energetic organizations for social change. So why do you think in New England in particular that women's suffrage did not enjoy earlier success? That's a great question. I think that one reason, for example, in Massachusetts why that happened is that anti-suffragists were really quick to organize. So that's because, of course, suffragists were really powerful in Massachusetts earlier than elsewhere. And so you have anti-suffragists who are really quick to organize and you get this, um, I think that you have a lot of wealthier, powerful people 
who are happy to continue to kind of block this dramatic social change from happening. So shifting our gaze within Maine for a moment, one of the, the most notable artists of the, the women's suffrage movement was Annie Lucasta Rogers, who, who wrote as Lou, uh, and she was from Patton, Maine, uh, a small lumber town in, in Penobscot County. And she achieved significant notoriety as one of the artists of the, the women's suffrage movement, among other causes. Could you talk a bit about the significance of some of her work? Absolutely, yeah. Lou Rogers was actually born in 1879, and she was born from a family who had lived in Maine actually since the 1630s. So they were actually really central to founding a lot of patent institutions, including the library and the local congregational church. I think, you know, it's really interesting to look at the rise of these early women's artists like Lou Rogers. She started out in Maine, but she actually saved her salary when she was a teacher to to become a student at the Massachusetts Normal Art School, which was in Boston. So she's really following a trend of women who are shifting from kind of more rural areas in order to urban areas in order to kind of gain new opportunities. Um, She eventually moved to New York and that's really where she really gains a footing as a professional artist. And she does that for a very popular political satire publication called Judge. And that was an organ- a, a publication that for many years uh, mocked the women's suffrage movement. Huh. But um, by um, the early you know, 1910s or so, they really start shifting in and showing, creating cartoons in support of suffrage. And so Lou Rogers actually published hundreds of suffrage cartoons, and she does it for kind of more mainstream papers like Judge, but also for those kind of reform newspapers like the Women's Journal, the Women Voter. She worked with the National American Women's Suffrage Association. So she's very much kind of straddling, kind of like working with the suffragists themselves, but also working with kind of more mainstream press. She has a lot of really fabulous illustrations showing women, um, you know, securing this important right. (laughs) Is she turning the tables at judge and kind of taking pot shots at the anti-suffrage movement? Are these satirical commentaries in support of suffrage or is it more sincere? Yeah, so she definitely writes she she does she does I mean she published hundreds of suffrage cartoons so she has a real Fair. range of <laughs> uh, of her kind of humor um, and I think that yes some of them are certainly incredibly sincere and some of them are far more humorous and yeah she she's she's one of the most prolific suffrage cartoonists actually and you know unlike someone like Nina Allender who draws a lot for the National Women's Party who kind of creates this kind of idealized suffrage girl um, called the Allender girl something along the lines of the Gibson girl you know Lou Rogers isn't quite as strict with adhering to kind of like this idealized vision of a suffrage woman in quite the same way as someone like Blanche Ames, who is actually a Massachusetts cartoonist, or Nina Allender. Well, Lou Rogers was also involved with socialist causes, uh, the anti-war movement, and in favor of birth control legislation as well. Yes. And so 
respectability politics was not really Lou Rogers's game, we should, we should add. I think that's true. Yeah, a lot of these, you know, suffragists had a, a variety of perspectives. And that's a really great, a great thing to point out. So you talked about a women's party. And so this gets to my next question, which is the opponents of black suffrage notoriously argued in the 19th century and the 20th century during Jim Crow, that black voters would argue would vote as a block, and that this was inherently bad. Do either opponents or proponents anticipate a women's block of voters by the early 20th century? And does this show up in the imagery? People did think that women would vote as a block. And the reason they did is because of this suffrage propaganda that I mentioned, right? So if you have these suffrage leaders arguing that women will cast their ballots in order to improve, you know, their children's education in order to make sure that governments are no longer corrupt and improve their communities, they are arguing essentially that women will vote as a block. Um, but this block, as you can guess, never emerges, right? I mean, even the, that kind of propaganda is, um, you know, just one piece of the uh, arguments that are being made at that time. Suffragists can barely agree on how best to argue for the right to vote. And so um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, people actually, you know, scholars have said that because no women's voting block never emerged, how much influence or impact did the 19th Amendment really have? Um, and I would argue that people who are kind of looking for that block have just bought those suffragists, you know, propaganda. Um, and uh, that, you know, the fact that women don't vote as a block is, I think, the same reason why men don't vote as a block. People have, you know, a range of opinions. Right. That's a great point you raise, and it, it gets into my my next question, which is after suffrage, right? And this 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 I think is a it's a strange juxtaposition, and I think explaining it is important. And the way that oftentimes mainstream narrative histories don't integrate women's suffrage in the 19th Amendment into the story, I think is, is a failure and it's unfortunate. And I'm not casting aspersions on the scholars of the behavior of women voters like Christy Anderson, Anna Harvey, and, and Joe Freeman, who, who've done some important work on explaining how women did politically participate in the decades after the 1920s. That said, the first national election after the 19th Amendment results in the landslide election of Warren G. Harding, the most ordinary, unspectacular, not special, undistinguished person, arguably to hold the office within, within anybody's living memory. Even his friends just said, eh, Warren's he's a nice guy. And he ends up running this corrupt administration and he dies in office. It's now rated as, at least to date, the most corrupt administration. And then after Warren, we get after Warren G. Harding, sorry, we get Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover. These are not transformative presidents by anybody's imagination. The fact that American politics in the 1920s does not seem to undergo a major shift. Why would you say that is? Well, I think that one reason is because they're, as I said, you know, women are voting Similarly to men, they have a lot of different different opinions and that you aren't just going to see the election of like a, um, someone who, 
you know, agrees with, you know, somehow all of the mothers in the United States about how to approve education of their children, because I don't think that's possible in the 21st century or the 20th century. And so, of course, there's not, you know, a dramatic change there. I think the other really important thing to note is that once the 19th Amendment passes, we do start to see a shift in voting. You know, people don't, aren't voting as much by then on the whole. Um, I think that people are starting to devalue it, you know, once women get this right, people aren't voting as much by then and not as much as they were in the 19th century. The the turnout rates just start to decline quite a bit. And true. I believe the peak was in the 1880s, which is fascinating because politics in the 1880s come across as so small ball and about (laughs) tariffs and things, but like compared to some of the other issues contested in American elections, the 1880s are just sort of, you know, small potatoes. And yet almost everybody who's eligible votes in the in the 1880s. So that is fascinating. And I'm wondering, do a number of the suffrage activists, are they disappointed in the 1920s in their failure to build sort of an explicit women's coalition to advance their agenda as they see it? I don't think the suffragists were surprised. I mean, they had been running this movement for decades, nearly a century. They knew how much women disagreed about every issue. And so I think that one example we can point to post 19th Amendment as a place where former suffragists really clearly disagreed is the proposal of the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923 by Alice Paul um, for the National Mm -hmm. Women's Party. And, you know, while it may seem really uh, like of course, all suffragists would have supported this idea that prohibiting discrimination based on sex that the Equal Rights Amendment proposed to do. Um, actually, in the 1920s and beyond, there was a lot of concern by women's rights activists that the ERA would actually overturn a lot of the particularly labor protections that were put in place to protect women in the workplace. And, you know, that changes, the conversation changes, of course, by the 1970s when men and women by then have protections in the workplace. Um, So the ERA wouldn't necessarily affect that, but they, opponents had a lot of other different concerns. So, yeah, it's certainly Phyllis Schlafly, who is probably the most famous opponent of the, the ERA in the 1970s. She definitely was arguing for women if there isn't any an equal rights amendment, they will lose certain protections and entitlements that they have as women. And so defending along those lines. Exactly. And she's not as concerned about labor protections like they were in the 1920s. She is more concerned about the kinds of things that actually anti-suffragists were concerned about a century earlier, about women's privilege to be in the home, you know, without, you know, unfortunately recognizing the like racial and class privilege that allowed her to be, have this, you know, or believe that this place in the home is so important. Now, I do have a question about the campaigning, though, and this is something I, as far as I know, and I've I've taught American political parties, but the, the candidates in the 1920s onwards don't seem to be making big public appeals to women for their vote in the way that we do see, in the way that we have seen in the past few decades. Uh, According to the 538 election website, which does some great data journalism, 
there was a gender gap that did emerge in American voting beginning in 1980, and now it's bigger than ever, but there wasn't before. But do you, have you seen any evidence of politicians changing their style or their strategy based on this change in the voting pool? Let me think about that. It's not something that I have noticed. I think that it takes a lot longer for women to actually emerge as people who are running for office. I mean, certainly there are some some leaders early on who step up. In fact, some anti-suffrage women uh, end up running for office after the 19th Amendment passes as well. Um, But I think that we should look at the gap that still exists today between, for example, male and female uh, members of Congress. And we can see an enormous gap there. And I think that the fact that a lot of Congress people did not appeal or did not necessarily go out of their way to appeal to women is kind of, you know, one of the things that that is hopefully now um, trying to feed ever more um, women to actually run for higher office. That's a good point. On a related note, I find it interesting that it is now that we have, uh, particularly the, the Democratic Party knows that it depends on the support of, of women. Women are more likely since 1980 to vote for Democratic candidates in general. Men are more likely to vote Republican. And we see even in 2020, the Democratic Party is explicitly pitching itself as a party for women. Um, and certainly, there, no, we're not trying to claim that all American women agree on everything. But that uh, what you see much more now is at least one of the two major political parties really making a concentrated strategic appeal to women voters. And why do you think that took until the later 20th century before it became a noticeable trend in our politics? Well, I think that, you know, women vote in far greater numbers than men. And I think that regardless of the fact, you know, people may have known that before, but um, I think that a lot of people who held positions of power really didn't care to kind of hone messages to those voters. And so I think we're seeing a lot more people higher up in organizations um, who are women and who are recognizing that they can kind of like win over a major part of the electorate um, by making sure that their messages appeal to women. And I think that I do want to point out that the Republican Party also is trying to make a case that they are also have a lot of female candidates and supporters. And they are emphasizing that, you know, a significant number of women are running for office on the Republican ticket this year too. And so I think it's interesting to see, I mean, certainly I agree with you that the Democratic Party, you know, obviously does have on the whole more female supporters, but it's interesting to see the way that um, even in the past, say, five years, that women are just running for office in general on the whole more than they had been previously. That's a good point, and I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I didn't mean to imply that the that there are not a growth in Republican women candidates or an emphasis uh, on attracting women by the Republicans either. Although well, I it's think it's less central to their identity. 
Yeah, I think it's really important um, because they see how valuable it is on the Democratic side to have female candidates and female supporters. And so because they're seeing that, they're doing their best to, yeah, respond in kind. And that, I suppose, gets to another phenomenon in American history and politics that's worth emphasizing in public education, right, that activism isn't just about protesting in the streets and sort of the stick side, if you will, but also about carrots of rewarding various parties with your vote. And so when we look at one of the ways that Black Americans use to gain their rights is that they did vote largely as a block after the American Civil War for understandable reasons for the Republican Party, backing Mm -hmm. it in the South to protect their civil rights. But then in ways that are less well known as power brokers in the urban North by the early 20th century, where they moved, where they did have the right to vote, and that they made first Republicans and then much more Democrats by the 1930s take an increasingly liberal stance on civil rights and other issues vital to African-Americans. Most famously, Harry Truman moved forward on integrating the U.S. military and other civil rights issues to secure Black votes in key states in his tight 1948 re-election. And so it's worth, I would suggest, paying attention to the ways in which these new groups of voters uh, in securing their rights have also worked to, to push these major political parties, sometimes by rewarding them and by giving them more power that way. Yes, exactly. And that's why it's so important to, you know, make your, your opinions known to the people in power, because that does shape where, you know, a candidate's platform goes and then, you know, where the party's platform goes. I think that, that that's really true. The complex nature of American politics after the 19th Amendment makes me think of, this is one of those cases where information fairly well known among scholars hasn't yet been incorporated so well into popular understandings of American history. So for example, the lost cause myth that the the Civil War wasn't about slavery and the Confederacy cared about states' rights was always called out by some scholars, especially W.E.B. Du Bois and other African-American historians. And then later on, this this scholarly understanding of the historical record percolated through the rest of the, the nation. So thinking about the ways in which your research and and the research of other colleagues of yours we've talked about has has changed our understanding of women as political actors. How would you like to see the 19th Amendment integrated into textbooks and more narrative treatments of U.S. history? Well, I never want to see the line, women were granted the right to vote in relationship to the 19th Amendment in 1920. That's one thing I'd like to see changed. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important to emphasize to students, to the general public that, as we said, the 19th Amendment prohibited voter discrimination based on sex. I think that's really vital. And then I think emphasizing that it wasn't just a movement, you know, that that uh, there was a high point in 1848 and a high point in 1920, and that was kind of it. Um, this is a movement that, as we've discussed, really intersected with many other political movements from populism to temperance to the progressive era and you know, anti-war movements. All of these movements were intersected with these women's rights leaders. And I think it's really vital that we remember that women of color were 
really crucial people in these causes, you know, thinking not just about Susan B. Anthony again, but also about Sojourner Truth and Francis Ellen Watkins Harper and Ida B. Wells and Mary Church Terrell. That's um, recognizing those women who have so often been kind of neglected in this story is hopefully one of the things we will walk away from the centennial thinking about. From your perch as one of the experts on this issue, I know you've been involved with a number of really great projects, but looking at popular observance, if you will, of the centennial of the 19th Amendment, would you say that this more nuanced understanding that you have just described has been more broadly disseminated this centennial? Are you encouraged that there is a change in how more Americans are are looking at the 19th Amendment? I'm incredibly excited and encouraged by what I've been seeing. So obviously scholars have written, you know, a very different version of the popular suffrage narrative for, you know, decades, but um, I'm seeing a lot in, you know, mainstream publications, Uh, the New York Times, Time, USA Today, a lot of, you know, public facing media outlets who are thinking about the ways that women won the right to vote and fought again for the right to vote that I might not have expected a few years ago. And that is incredibly exciting. I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about today, the ways that women of color participated, the ways that it was more than a Seneca Falls convention in 1848, the ways that the 19th Amendment was an important milestone, but an unfinished revolution. Um, I think a lot, a surprising number of news outlets um, and people who are kind of you know, conveying this story to the public right now have gotten that message. And that's really encouraging for historians like me um, and my wonderful colleagues, because it means that the work we're doing is really reaching the public in in a meaningful way. And that's very exciting. I'm glad to hear that. 2020 has been a year in which Americans have taken down a number of statues. So I'm going to ask you a question about putting up a statue. If somebody put you in charge of picking a suffrage activist to put up a statue to, who would it be, why, and what would it look like? That is a great question. And, you know, the honest answer is probably my my opinion would change day to day. But today it's going to be Mary Church Terrell. I think that she is one of the undersung heroes of this movement. She was born in 1863. She was enslaved when she was born, but she ended up being one of the first Black women to graduate from college. She was the first president of the National Association for Colored Women and fought, you know, alongside Ida B. Wells in favor of women's voting rights, in favor of civil rights legislation. And one of the really cool things about her story is that she um, actually was a really important civil rights leader for the rest of her life. She picketed uh, segregated restaurants in D.C. in the 1950s when she was in her 80s. And so it's, it's, it's a great, um, her life is a great story of how the 19th Amendment was just one part of the story um, in, in this, you know, ever ongoing conversation about social justice in the United States. That's convincing. 
and what would this statue look like? That's a great question. Uh, one of the things I love about Terrell is that she loved fashion. And so if you look up images of her, you will find her often wearing very elegant clothing, um, very fancy hats. Um, she was well off. She was wealthy. Her father was one of the first, is considered to be one of the first black millionaires. He was a saloon owner. And he uh, so she actually believed that she was trying to kind of challenge popular misconceptions of women uh, as, you know, masculine, as educated women. They believed that the educated women were, you know, looked masculine and didn't care about their clothes and didn't look very nice. And so she wore incredibly elegant clothes um, in order to counter that stereotype. So there are some great portraits of her in fabulous hats and boas and, you know, of gorgeous jewelry and, and very extravagant dresses that I think would make for a fabulous statue. <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> what do you have up ahead that you are excited about these days that our audience should, should get ready to check out? Well, uh, I'm excited about doing a lot of virtual talks in the next several months. And I actually put those up as much as I, as much as possible um, on my personal website, which is allisonklang.com. But one thing that we can do in this moment when we're all kind of stuck at home and really not able to go see things that we might otherwise wish to see is check out a website that I helped curate called Truth Be Told, which was a website um, supported by Pivotal Ventures. And that is an exhibition about the history of black suffragists. And so we have a lot of like historical sources telling you their stories. Um, and I would also highly recommend uh, checking out the Massachusetts Historical Society's online exhibit, Massachusetts Debates, Women's Right to Vote, for some additional amazing visual material about the suffrage movement. Those sound great. Now, finally, what is something that somebody else is working on that you are excited about and think the audience should look into? It will not surprise anyone who already heard me say which statue I want that I am very <laughs> excited about Allison Parker's upcoming biography of Mary Church Terrell. It is going to be the very first biography of Mary Church Terrell that we have, which is, you know, in 2020, uh, it feels very shocking that we haven't had a biography <laughs> of her before. So I'm very excited to read that. Oh, sounds great. Okay, so you heard it here first, folks. Allison Lang, thank you so much for coming on to Mainly History. It's been a pleasure. We hope to have you again soon. That sounds great. Thank you, Ian. That's our show. Join us next time as we sit down with James Melcher from the University of Maine at Farmington to find out why Maine chose its unusual method of awarding its electoral votes, why the Pine Tree State became the first in the nation to use ranked choice voting. Believe it or not, in a close race, Maine's second district might even decide the 2020 U.S. presidential election. So we hope you'll decide to listen in next time. To stay up to date until then, follow us on Twitter at Mainly History and subscribe to us on your podcast provider of choice. Vote for us, ideally early, but also absentee. Thanks for listening.